How many products do you know of that have been to the moon and back that you can purchase the exact same model of today? I can't think of any. Then you must not own a Fisher Space Pen. Neil Armstrong and the entire Apollo 11 crew carried Fisher Space Pens when they went to the moon. Today, they are used on all NASA Apollo and shuttle missions. They're stocked on the International Space Station. And they're available to the public? They are. Because they have pressurized cartridges, these are the only pens out there that will write for you in virtually any environment, on any surface, even underwater, and yes, in outer space. These are great pens for sportsmen who spend a lot of their time outside. That's amazing, because I'm always looking for a pen to take fishing notes while I'm wade fishing, and I can't find one that works once it gets wet. This isn't your iPhone. This pen will write wet. It'll even write underwater. Fisher Space Pens make incredible gifts, and they're a great corporate incentive or reward. And if you're looking for another reason to own a Fisher Space Pen, they're used by the brave men and women of the United States military and law enforcement agencies around the world. Fisher Space Pen will customize any of their products with your company logo. Which one should I get? There's too many models to list, but the bullet remains the best-selling Fisher Space Pen. All Fisher Space Pens are made in the USA, and they were just honored by President Trump's third annual Made in America product showcase at the White House. I'm ordering mine now on their website, spacepen.com. That's spacepen.com. And don't forget to use promo code DRIFTWOOD to get 20% off your purchase. That's promo code DRIFTWOOD to get 20% off your Fisher Space Pen purchase. Order yours today, spacepen.com. Welcome to the Driftwood Outdoors podcast and possibly the end of days. It's apocalyptic, man. Man, it's getting weird. And we're, we're coming on, we're doing something a little different this time because we have Clay Newcomb with Bear Hunting Magazine and the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast coming up because we were all down at your cabin. But I wanted to come on before to reassure everyone we're not trying to spread coronavirus. These were all recorded months ago. And it seems like it'd be a do- us being a disservice if we didn't bring up what everyone is dealing with, not only in Missouri, the Midwest, this country, but worldwide in this pandemic that is that's happening. Well, we're sitting six feet apart right now and two people in an apartment and talking about the fact that we're worried about it. And we're pretty healthy, middle-aged men. These two podcasts that are coming up after Clay's were recorded a couple weeks ago at the uh, Professional Bowhunter Society meeting in Springfield, and there was 400 people there in the room, and this was right before they started shutting down large gatherings. And then I got back from Florida yesterday, and I'll tell you, just being on an airplane, it felt so weird. I mean, first of all, there's people in masks and gloves, and uh, you look at somebody that starts coughing a little bit different. There was this old man, looked like he was going to hack up a lung. I felt like they should just get a gurney for him when he got off the plane, but... It's weird. I'm on my way to Driftwood Acres right now. I, I just hit the grocery store, bought uh, four boxes of tissues for the bathroom because there's no toilet paper. That's insane. That just shows how fragile our society is and how hysteria can take over. You know, toilet paper has nothing to do with this, but you cannot find it. So we're going to have a nice luxurious tissue wiping <laughs> experience at our at our cabin. But I've, you know, I've got uh, I've, I've got quite an arsenal. I've, I just stopped and bought some chainsaw chaps because I'm afraid if I cut my leg with a chainsaw while I'm gathering heat for the home, 
there'd be no getting to the hospital or taken care of in time. So I don't know, man. I've got a couple ARs, chainsaw, two coolers full of meat, a bunch of canned goods, and I'm going to go down there and just kind of duck in for the long haul. Well, I think that's the key at the long haul is Missouri. I mean, St. Louis and Kansas City are under a 30-day mandated uh, stay home. We're here in, in Columbia, the Midwest area. I mean, the mid-Missouri area is more of a the social distancing, no gatherings more than 10 people. But the thing I, I don't think we can stress enough is it's going to get worse. Like, it's going to get weirder. There's going to be more things coming down the pipe. And, I mean, I'm considered an essential worker being in the media. So I'm still going to be required to go in. We've already changed our schedule at work. I mean, we're sitting here on a Monday when I should be at work but now we've changed the schedules to where it's only one person in the studio at a time that i don't know man it's it's really really weird and i hope people start taking it really serious of the social distancing and just staying at home and not going out it's the only way we're going to curb it and it it just seems like this is something that's not going to end after two or three weeks like we're we're going to be in this for for quite a while it it definitely is going to continue longer than anybody has ever dreamed I mean, just going to the grocery store and, and seeing people walk around in this apocalyptic state we're still trying to get our minds around it. it it just still doesn't seem real that things are falling apart this fast and you know i'm very fortunate to to work for raceline and and as director of communications i can do my job remotely so i'm working on a redesign of the website i'm working on some articles about our operation. So things that I would normally be doing from a remote office anyways, I'm, I'm trying to get done, but I feel so bad for so many people. I mean, if you're a server or a bartender right now, I mean, (sighs) it's, it's going to be, and then we got the, everyone in Washington fighting over if they're going to pass, you know, the bill to give us money to help us out in the, these times. I was joking that I feel like it's the most anxiety. It's the most panic I've ever had in my life with normalcy of just trying to figure my days my days are same it's normal but yet this underlining level of panic and anxiety is this weird it's just a weird weird experience Uh, it's weirder than we've ever imagined i mean you like sci-fi movies and horror movies and it's kind of coming true you know my cousin Derek called me the other day and he'd been drinking and uh he said this is what we've been waiting for our whole lives oh no you know, he's, the end of days oh he's got all of his camo flak jackets all like like his business suits are all lined up you know like army army uh retail store type stuff but you know it, it is a time where i'm not that worried about food i know i can go out and catch fish and and kill deer and if it comes to that but if we lose electricity six days less than that i imagine i mean when freezers start falling out and frozen food can't last and people who don't know how to smoke meat or grow vegetables i mean there's 330 million people who can't share toilet paper what happens when you can't go to the grocery store and get food? I mean, no, that's true. And I'm not, I'm not there yet on the do the doomsday prepping. I, I'm just more concerned about the the toll of the people getting sick and the overrun of the hospitals and not having enough beds. That I think we're going to come out on the other side of this and still have 
a resemblance of a society, but I mean, financially, economically, I mean, it, it could, that's, that's where the panic is the unknowing, I guess, just the anxiety of the unknowing of am I going to get sick? Cause I do have an autoimmune deficiency disorder. I'm in a high, higher risk than most. Am I going to lose someone I care about because of it? Are they going to get sick? And if we don't get sick, are we going to be okay financially when we come out on the other end? It's just a weird, weird time, man. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Selfishly, looking at my 401k like i'm one of those everybody's like don't look at it don't look at it but i have an app for it and look at it almost every day and i've been watching it tick up and up and up and up and i'm i'm putting in the max amount right now so i've felt really good about the fact that i'm finally getting a pretty good nest egg going and in two weeks half of it's gone just bam gone and um i'm just thinking at, at this point that's small potatoes you know don't be selfish don't think that way worry about the big picture like you said you you know i know you've got crohn's and that's serious and my mom's a diabetic and uh, bobby whitehead who's like family to me he has to go for dialysis and and sit in there with other people who are compromised oh man like yeah once that happens that really is gonna shake things up so we're you know we're not trying to be downers here but we're dealing with this like everybody else is and we want you to know that uh we're taking it serious and, and we're wishing all of you all the best and try to figure out how to get through this as a country and as a world. Yeah. And we got, uh, like we said, we got this week's and then two more interviews, two more podcasts following, and then we're going to be playing it by ear. Maybe I'll end up down at the cabin uh, hunting for, for meals on the plate down, down there at Driftwood Acres. But moving forward, we're going to keep trying to give you some entertainment, something to keep your mind off things. And this interview was really exciting. Now, keep in mind, too, we talk about Ross and some share the harvest because when we recorded this, it was just coming down the pipe. And this interview happened about uh, three, four weeks ago, probably about a month, maybe more. When we had Hal Herring and Clay Newcomb down there at Driftwood Acres at your at your cabin, you guys got to do some fishing. And man, a really interesting guy. Bear hunting magazine, bear hunting magazine podcast. We talk everything about bear hunting and his close encounter on one of his hunts where a bear came up and knows the tip of his arrow that i'm really excited for you guys to to hear this podcast let's do it the driftwood outdoors podcast with brandon butler and nathan shags mcleod when friends ask me about the Ozarks, the conversation quickly will turn to Lake of the Ozarks, which is a cool place, but in no way represents the mountains of southern Missouri or northern Arkansas. Today's guest, Clay Newcomb, is as Ozarkian as anyone I've met our age. Born and raised in northwest Arkansas, he hunts off of mules on public land. He's the owner of Bear Hunting Magazine and hosts the Bear Hunting Podcast, and I'm super excited to have him here at Driftwood Acres today. Right on, man. Thanks for having me. I'm Brandon Butler. I'm Nathan Shags McLeod. I'm Clay Newcomb. Clay, welcome to our podcast, man. It's, I'm excited to get into talking to you about bear hunting because that's something that's completely uh, a Something I'm a novice, never even done it before, but it really excites me. What we like yeah. to do here at the beginning is we pick a couple of random stories just to kind of get the conversation flowing. And all of us being outdoorsmen, I think we'll appreciate this, that there's a vegetarian food company that's developed a nicotine-like meat patch 
to curb your meat cravings. Mm. <laughs> so allegedly, this is supposed to help curb cravings for bacon. We all love, we had some for breakfast this morning. We love the bacon. Does it look like bacon? It's like a bacon sticker? It, it kind of is because it, it's misleading to thinking that it curbs the craving like a nicotine patch because the nicotine patch is transdermal and it releases little doses of nicotine into your system. You're not getting little pieces of bacon being put into your bloodstream mm. remember growing up as kids you had the scratch and sniff stickers that you put on your trapper keepers and there was always the one with the little bacon strip on it it's legitimately that it's a sticker that smells like bacon that you attach to your body and they say that the smell that just smelling it enough will satisfy your craving to eat bacon no way man like i pictured these boxes on a shelf covered in dust a little bit down the road like i don't know who's investing in this but get your money back if you can i can't see this working yeah the idea is to make you want more bacon then that's that was my point like if i smell bacon that's exactly what i wanted to go after i need some bacon but they say this is for those that are trying to transition out of the meat eating world and into becoming a vegetarian just to kind of ease you in but i can't imagine having a scratch and sniff bacon sticker on me and Somehow that's going to make me not want that. I'll, uh, no, yeah, I'll have that broccoli sandwich over over a strip of bacon. So my father-in-law has uh, gout, which I wouldn't wish on anybody because you can't drink or eat red meat and pork. So he's cut out bacon, and my uh, my mother-in-law started buying turkey bacon. Mm. So my wife's always determined to be just like her mama. So turkey bacon started showing up in my house and oh, we had wow. a legitimate fight about it <laughs> you do not bring turkey bacon into my house and serve it to me if you want it for yourself that's great i want smithfield bacon Real i don't think bacon. I've, i don't think i've ever had turkey bacon like was that what does that taste like like fake bacon <laughs> just fake fake ass bacon huh yeah the, they I'm, can't replicate the, the the transition from bacon meat to bacon fat which I think that's where bacon gets its wonder. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, you get a piece of bacon, mm-hmm. and there's the actual meat, but then there's the crisp fat. Yeah. And so it, turkey bacon can't replicate that because turkey bacon is like a solid meat processed substance, you know, that just has this bacon flavor. So anyway, that, to me, that's where turkey bacon, bacon loses it is in the texture. Absolutely, and, and, and the flavor of the fat. Well, I mean, that's yeah. why I'm a ribeye guy. You know, a lot of yeah. people like to trim the fat off their steaks i want it to be marbled and the same thing with the bacon when you mix up when you have the perfect piece of bacon cooked just just to where it's crispy it can't be soggy it can't be burned it's got to be in the middle kind of like a chewy piece of jerky and you mix that meaty chunk with the fat next to it well, that, that was gonna be my next question magic. since we're talking bacon where are you on the bacon cooked scale are you the the chewy Flimsy bacon, the burnt to a crisp bacon. Where, where, yeah, right in the middle, right in the middle. Right in the, I like some of it crisp, but not all of it. See, I, again, I am non-biased. I love it. I love it all, but I don't. I don't even mind when it's been on a little too long, and it's like just a bacon shrapnel bomb that goes off, like the Captain Crunch yeah, of bacon kind of that black stuff that yeah. just destroys the roof of your mouth. But I think I would err on the side of more cooked than less. Same. Yeah. Now, I want to talk fishing for a second because that's my real passion, and I like to try to interject fishing in as much as possible, that there was a fisherman in a kayak, and he's reportedly set an unofficial world record after he managed to hook a 500-pound black marlin off the Pacific coast of Panama. In his kayak, this battle took over six hours and drug him 15 miles 
out into the ocean. Mm. It's so old man in the sea, it almost feels like it was staged. Mm. That apparently he fought it in the kayak for four hours and 37 minutes. And to get a kayak record, because we all know you're not putting a 500-pound marlin in a kayak, you just have to touch the leader. If you can get the fish close enough to your kayak to make contact your hand on the leader, that's considered Mm. a catch. So then he had a boat that was chasing him the 15 miles out into the ocean where they came up, picked him up. He transferred the rod to there because if you're not familiar, marlin, much like a big brown trout, they will exhaust themselves to death to try to get away. They will fight to the point of the brink of death and they were going to release it. He didn't want it to keep fighting him in the kayak. So little did they know it took another 90 minutes in a fishing boat to get it close enough to release it, which they did. And I was just going to ask, because six hours is incredible to me and being drugged 15 miles in the ocean is terrifying. But what's the longest you've ever fought a fish and caught? I've, I've got a good, I've got a good one. When I was 13 years old, I went down to the pond down on my neighbor's property just within sight of my house, but just barely. I threw in, I used some uh, chicken chicken liver with pantyhose. Have you ever used pantyhose to keep oh, yeah. chicken liver like online? Like a spawn sack mm-hmm. yeah. for catfish. <laughs> threw it out there, hooked a fish on six-pound test's ultralight reel. I was catfishing. I guess I didn't really think I was going to catch one. And I ended up fighting that fish for about 30 minutes. Walked all the way around the pond. I mean, it was a big deal. And finally, my neighbor saw me. And came down and helped me land it. And it was about an 11-pound catfish, which at the time when I was 13 was like a monster. Well, we've talked about this before, that I wasted my once-in-a-lifetime on a fish that I knew nothing about. But I was 32 miles offshore out of Venice, Louisiana, on an offshore trip for tuna, for yellowfin, and uh, caught a 211-pound yellowfin tuna that took 45 wow. minutes to, to bring in. And, I mean, I nearly threw up at the end. It was, you know like an unbelievable workout to bring that fish and you'd start like making progress and it's coming and it's coming and you'd work five, 10 minutes to make that progress. And then it's just gone again. You'd bring them back in. But yeah, there's things that I've dreamed about my whole life, catching a a double digit largemouth bass. You know, I'd like to kill a 200 inch free range whitetail someday, uh, kill a bull, any six point bull or better. I I never in my life said, I hope I catch a world-class yellowfin tuna but that's what i got and that thing was massive and they're just built for speed i mean those things are built like an underwater bullet a a 40 pounder is the fight of your life Mm. a 211 pounder when i brought it when it got on the boat and the captain started dancing like music was on they were just going all over high five and (laughs) i said is it a good one one? (laughs) how how big do they get i mean they get really this guy had been a captain for 32 years, and this is the second biggest one he'd ever had on his boat, the first biggest being only one pound more. Wow. So they get bigger in other parts of the okay, world. Okay, that's what I was going to say. In the Gulf, that's a monster. Yeah, 200-pound yellowfin tuna in the Gulf is a monster. We yeah. should have made him go last. Because yeah. my, my fish isn't nearly as big as, as that one. <laughs> that probably is this the, a bluegill story? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It took me six days to get in this bluegill. That's... My longest battle is probably a 28-pound Chinook salmon on mm. the Columbia River, uh, fishing it with a, a quick fish, and we had to cut loose and let it tow the boat around, and it it was it's it's one of those that it was snowing. I got a picture of like a sn- snow in the background, snowflake on my nose.
nose holding the biggest salmon I've ever caught to this date. And it, it was just exhilarating and no seal or sea lion got to it, which is always a, an issue back home that mm. that was pretty exciting and and by far the the longest longest battle one of those i mean with that excitement afterwards i know you're probably exhausted but were your knees knocking like anytime you could you know that excitement of that big fish and mm-hmm. the adrenaline is starting to leave your body now and the knees start to knock and i'm gonna sit down i just need to take a moment that after i got that fish in there like i just dropped the pole and went and sat down for a second like just give me a moment yeah and these big offshore boats they, they got bean bags that's what you sit in when you're running out so there's like a little bit of a cushion when you're bouncing on the waves and stuff so i just collapsed into the pile of bean bags and grabbed a beer and watched everybody <laughs> dance what about 13 year old you did you have the excitement of of the man knees knocking? Was, no no i was just pumped i remember i carried that thing home and showed my dad and i was just proud Oh, that's awesome. No knees knocking. <laughs> What's funny that that story came up, if you would have asked me 10 days ago what the old man in the sea was about, I would not have been able to tell you. I read it about 10 days ago. The book. The book. Yeah, it's yeah. such a short wow. read. Yeah, I, I read the book and uh, shoot. This story you just told ain't got nothing on that old man. <laughs> oh, and of course, if anyone doesn't know, Old Man in the Sea is a classic by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. But it's a very short book. Of all the works that he's done, it's probably the most recognized and, and most famous. Yeah. But it's almost like a novella. Yeah, yeah. And finally, I wanted to bring up that Missouri making national news once again for conservation that MSN was reporting that Missouri hunters donated nearly 350,000 pounds of venison to food banks and food pantries with their share of the harvest program this past deer season. Well, I'm so proud of that because we've really been working hard to to bolster that program. So anyone that's not aware, Share the Harvest is a deer donation program where the meat is ground and passed out to those in need through the food banks. It's very, very personal to me. When I was running CFM, I ran this program for five years. Uh, We worked hard on spreading the word and trying to up the numbers. And five years ago, I think there was about 4,000 deer donated, and this year there was nearly 6,800. When this program really set in for me. I was sitting at Lambert's Cafe in Sykeston, Missouri, and I was there to give a speech with Governor Jay Nixon at the food bank, uh, kicking off the Share the Harvest season. And the media was there, and I'm in a booth. You know, Lambert's is that famous throwed rolls Mm -hmm. place. There's Mm -hmm. two of them in the state, and uh, I'm sitting there working on my notes, and my waitress said, what are you doing? And I, I started to explain to her what I was there for and what Share the Harvest was. And she said, hold on a second. And she went off and she came back. And now there's three waitresses. And she said, scoot over. So I scoot mm-hmm. over. She sits with me and the two sit across from me. And they said, you know, things really get slow here in the winter. and We can get laid off and we could really use some of this. How do we get some of this meat? And it was like that proverbial light bulb going off over my head. Like this isn't just homeless people or indigent people. These are working class, single mothers. These are people that might just not get the protein that they need. You know, one of the really sad things that you see in in impoverished areas, whether it be urban or rural, is often the poorest people among us are the fattest people among us. And that's because they're just eating starches and processed foods. And here's an opportunity to put in the freezers of people in need 
healthy, organic, nutrient-rich venison. Mm -hmm. And the program is growing. More people are getting fed. When we, last year, I think it was 250,000 pounds. We've upped that by 100,000 pounds. And if you conservatively say a quarter pound per meal, it's a million meals. So instead of celebrating this right now in our state, you know, it's national news. So actually today, while we're recording this, February 26, a state representative from Texas County, Missouri, Robert Ross, just defunded this program. This man's inherent hatred of all things conservation has driven him to a point of taking meat out of the mouths of needy people. And he represents a county where the median household income is less than $30,000. I believe it's $28,000 a year. Mm. So all of these people that he is supposed to be serving, living in near poverty or absolute poverty... He is now, in order to to spur his personal vendetta against conservation or anything natural resource related in this state, is willing to take food off the plates of needy people. I don't understand how they could ever vote for someone like this again. Hmm. Since 1992, to put it in perspective, this was launched in 1992. The program has provided more than 4.3 million pounds of venison for people in need throughout the, the state of Missouri. That's tens of millions of meals going on to needy people's well, Do you know what, what this guy's, why that he did this? When he, he worked for DNR for a while, and that job went south for him, so he got elected into the legislature eight years ago. We have eight-year term limits in Missouri, and if you go back and look at the bills that he sponsored or co-sponsored, every single one of them <laughs> that that deals with natural resources or conservation is negative hmm. like he he came in swinging a bat trying to get even with dnr and state parks he uh. he he files legislation to combat clean water he does everything he can to defund and shut down state parks i mean he's just of that mentality where Anything conservation or natural resource related is evil. It's just not worth investing in. Not at all. And and he's a hunter, and he owns a, a thousand a thousand yard gun range. Like he shares some of these same passions that we share, and that is what is so asinine to me is the fact that he wants to destroy the system that provides what it is he and so many of the people around him grew up enjoying. Hmm. It's like they haven't thought through what happens. So you you burn down Camelot. Who's going to pay to rebuild? Like, where, what do you think happens? Like, just anarchy at that point? You make the rules, you do whatever you want. Like, it, 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 and of all the things to like go after, you're going to defund the one program that is putting food on the tables of families. And with our deer seasons and donating it, a lot of it happens around the holidays where pennies are being pinched the most and mm -hmm. the opportunity mm -hmm. for them to go to the food bank and get themselves some ground venison is just mind-boggling to me. That Even if you got beef, no pun intended, with the Department of Conservation or with the way things are being managed, why would you ever want to defund this program? Because he thinks no one will know. It goes back to what I talk about all the time. No one knows. They don't know who their state representative is. They don't know what he's doing. They don't know that the person that they elected to go to Jefferson City to support and represent them is taking food off their plates, literally. 
They don't know that he hasn't done anything in eight years to stimulate the economy of one of the poorest counties in the state, that they're near the bottom in every category, that he's done nothing but waste their time and money to combat the few things we have that are actually working incredibly well. It's just so unfortunate. And I know uh, last week, last podcast with Hal, we, we went on about an hour-long tirade of a lot of stuff that's very similar. And I don't want to fall into the same trap of, of getting, all, getting all worked up. I think we, Brandon's passionate about this. We, we got an uphill battle. I mean, it's pretty incredible. If you feel like you're living in some type of bizarro world, like the upside down and stranger things, of it's like, what are you thinking? I thought I knew what common sense was. And it it is mind-boggling to me that just especially this one of taking food taking off of food from poor the hungry, people's plates from the hungry man like what would jesus think <laughs> seriously though not to bring religion into it he, he spent his whole time feeding them with bread no, and fish. One of, he he opens up all of his uh commercials for his senate campaign about being a christian how christian is that oh my goodness it's it's awful so let's just transition let's talk let's talk bear hunting and the ozarks (laughs) and i mean this this whole idea of being a bear hunter is foreign to me i can honestly say i've only seen uh two bears in my life in the wild back home growing up in the hills of oregon i was like Mm. around oregon's a good bear state yeah 11 or 12 years old we were up just cruising the logging roads looking for wildlife like we'd like to spend so spend some time and I was with my uncle just creeping down the logging road and we saw two bear cubs just run out in front of us and cross the logging road and hmm. I still remember to this day and then my uncle going all right we got to get no one get no one's getting out around here we got to go and those were like the only bears I've seen in the wild we got we got a couple on a trail cam down here but how do you get how did you get into Hunting bears. Take us all the way back to yeah. the beginning, though, to kind of get started and, and where you're from and, and that culture and, and then how that yeah. all morphed into being this bear yeah. hunting leader. Well, we started, uh, I, I, I never, we never bear hunted until 2001. And I killed my first bear in 2001. And it was, uh, I was just fascinated by the animal. Was that in Arkansas? It was in Arkansas. The first year they made it legal to hunt bear actually over bait and what what they had decided to do the bear population had increased so much they needed to be able to manage bears in a more effective way they couldn't they couldn't harvest the bears they needed to harvest and so they 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 made it legal to to bait and hunt bears on private land which opened up the floodgates for bow hunters in arkansas to hunt bear and to go back to tell really a fascinating conservation story Arkansas was once known as the bear state. We had 50,000 bears, 50,000 square miles, bear per square mile. Wow. Pre-European settlement, okay? And by 1940, there were basically 40 bears in the entire state. So it went from 50,000 bears to 40,000 bears in the entire state. What caused it was what caused most of the wildlife degradation across this country during that time period you know between about 1800 and 1900 was a dark time for big game in north america and just our just wildlife in general so landscape level logging the the timber markets of arkansas and it would have been southern missouri too the timber markets our hardwood timber markets were supplying the the growing country back east so landscape level logging and market hunting which 
I'm always very passionate about saying market hunting has nothing to do with what we do today. Yeah. Totally different animal. But guys were coming to guys were coming to Arkansas to make a living as bear hunters. There's a town in Arkansas in, in the Ozarks called Oil Trough. Oil Trough, Arkansas. And uh, oil, tra- oil, oil Trough is actually not technically in the Ozarks, just out of the Ozarks. It is named that because of the bear oil that they processed in that city. And they would ship this processed bear oil, which is bear fat that's been rendered down in oil, ship it uh, down the White River to the Mississippi River and then down into New Orleans. And uh, that bear oil was a valuable commodity. And the bear hides were worth money. Bear meat was worth money. Anyway, they extirpated the bear, local extinction. And between 1954 and 1964, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission partnered with the province of Manitoba, Canada, and the state of Minnesota. And they they traded bass and wild turkey for 254 grown black bears that they brought back in wire cages over the course of a 10-year period. And they they brought those animals back and released them into three strategic locations in the 1950s. And so what had happened from a habitat perspective is the landscape-level logging of, of the 1800s had become curtailed and under management when Roosevelt made the National Forest System the National Forest Service in the early 1900s. I think, I think in 1907 is when the Ozark National Forest in 1908 was Washtenaw National Forest were established. And so, by the 50s, the timber had regrown, and all of a sudden the habitat was good for bear. And so, game and fish people with little public input. You know, it was a different time back then, with very little public input. Uh, traded bass and wild turkey for these bears, dropped them back into Arkansas. And long story short, they didn't know if it was going to work, and it was a ridiculous idea, and it probably wasn't going to work, but it ended up being the most successful reintroduction of large carnivores in the world. Wow. And and reintroduction meaning bringing fully grown, live, wild animals from somewhere else and putting them out somewhere else. Um, And uh, it's... uh, it's a fascinating recovery. And today, so from those 254 bears, by 1990, there were 2,500. So, you know, in 25 years, there was a tenfold increase. And then today, there's roughly 10,000 bears in the, in the region, which would include Arkansas, western, eastern Oklahoma, southern Missouri, western Mississippi, northern Louisiana, and eastern Texas. So, like, this big swath has bears that all came from those 254 bears that were transplanted, basically. And so Arkansas was the bear state. So you said there was 2,500 in 1990, but you didn't have a season until 2001. What was the the Game and Fish's determined number to allow you to have a season? Because here in Missouri, we're about to, uh, or at least we're exploring the option, and we have an estimated 500. Okay. Well, that's not exactly accurate the way I described it. We had a bear season that started in 1980, okay? But it was a bear season that was super regulated. It lasted a very short time. It was in early December when most of the females and cubs would have been denned. And there, the, the, the season regulations were 
as difficult as possible in that you couldn't use bait, couldn't use hounds, couldn't use anything. So it was just hunting bear like deer in the eastern deciduous forest, which is one of the toughest hunts, I believe, in North America. So essentially from 1980 until 2001, so for 21 years, that's the only way you could hunt is just hunt bears during this short period uh, yeah, the season got longer in the '90s. Do you have any data on how many bears were averaged? Yeah, yeah. the first year in nineteen in nineteen eighty, they killed five bears, and then by by the time by the mid '90s, they were killing about one hundred and fifty bears in Arkansas. But bear populations grow by ten percent per year. Healthy bear populations grow by ten percent per year. This is general bear management stuff that could be applied anywhere. In general, a healthy bear population grows by ten percent per year. So if you want to stabilize a population, you try to take out 10% per year. And in most places in North America, the management for black bears is they're trying to stabilize populations because they're increasing so much, which is a crazy thing. Whatever is happening ecologically right now, and it's probably because bears are generalists, uh, is is beneficial to them. You know, there's some animals that are are doing really well with whatever is happening, all these different ecological factors. And so so there was between 5 and 150 bears killed every year. And then we needed to kill we needed to harvest at least 4 to 500 bears per year to to stabilize this population. That's what they essentially wanted. Um and that that now at first they wanted 250 now they're wanting 500 because our population has grown but uh so what they did is they said we're going to turn the power over to the private landowners that are having bear problems and we're going to let them manage bear on private land with archery equipment so that's what they did so they said you can hunt bear on private land during archery season and uh, in, in these two big bear zones which are the ozark and washita mountains what's and, the bear season now so bear season now runs from the fourth Saturday in September through November 30th. And how many bears are getting killed every year? Between, depending upon the mass crop, between 350 and 450 bears. And do you normally get one every year? You know what? I don't always kill a bear in Arkansas because not, I mean, usually I'm putting the kids on bears and different things. No, your daughter River killed one this year, Yeah, right? she killed a nice one. What a great name, too. <laughs> River. Name your kids. My my oldest daughter's name is Willow River. Well, Willow River Bear and Shepherd. You so put, the oldest two are Willow and River, my two daughters, and my, my, my two sons are Bear and Shepherd. You just put every, every one of us to shame and cool kids. <laughs> cool kid. <laughs> you did well, man. <laughs> well, they're 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 good kids they're they're and they're they're hunters too so well you're really forging a life in in the mountains where you want to be so many people dream of that so many people dream yeah. of being able to stay home where they grew up and and, and i'm talking about rural people who are hey now i grew up in the washita's i gotta correct you from the first uh the first intro there, so Brandon. do you not consider the washita's the ozarks well, they're not. So when I think of the Ozarks, I think about the geographical region and everything that's kind of encompassed in that from right. southern Illinois, southern Missouri, most of northern Arkansas, Oklahoma, well, see, and the, maybe that's overgeneralized. The the Washita's were formed totally differently than the Ozarks. So that's why they're two different mountain ranges separated by the Arkansas River. Okay. So the, the, the Washita's were formed by uplift when the South American continent bumped into the North American continent. The only place that it buckled was in the Washita Mountains. Washita Mountains are the only mountains between the Appalachians and Rockies that run east and west. 
And uh, the Ozarks, as you probably know, are an eroded, uplifted plateau. Um, the the Washitas too. They they would look pretty similar if you just drove through without much they're, observation. They're spectacular. I mean, they're so beautiful. But they're really different. They're yeah. they're a series of long east west running ridges, and there's a lot of metamorphic rocks in the Washitas because of the heat and pressure from uplift. In the Ozarks, we don't have metamorphic rocks. Uh, we have sedimentary rocks. So are they considered their own geographical region? Oh, yeah. Washitas. Yeah, man. Yeah, don't don't get me started on the Washitas, brother. Take I, that, smarty pants. Hey, listen, listen, no, listen to this. Listen to this. Love it. The, the, I think this is fascinating. Yeah. The Washita Mountains were once 10,000 feet tall. Oh, yeah. See, the Ozarks were never any taller. The Ozarks are an eroded plateau. So the Ozarks were the bed of a shallow ancient ocean, okay? Just like this. I'm holding my arms out like they're flat. Mm-hmm. And then when all this orogeny, this mountain building stuff happened down here when North America bumped into South America, the Ozark Plateau, the Springfield Plateau, the Boston Mountains bubbled, just, a, just buckled just a little bit to up, uplift it. So you have this arch, and that arch, the pinnacle of that arch is kind of in, uh, uh, around Springfield. And then the, the Ozarks were eroded. So the mountains, the relief that we see in the mountains, you know, the distance between the top of a mountain down to the creek, like right out here outside of the cabin, is erosion. In the Washitas, the relief from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain came from massive pressure and force uplifting these mountains and those mountains were once 10,000 feet tall uh, listen to this this is what, I actually just learned this the further part of the story this week um on a on a on a map pre-dinosaur map deep deep time the Louisiana and part of Mississippi and part of Texas would have been considered the Washita Basin. And actually the Gulf, what we'd call the Gulf of Mexico now, would have actually come all the way up to the Ozarks. Well, when the, when the mountains bumped in, when the continent bumped in to the North American continent, formed the Washitas, there was this huge coastal range of mountains that was on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, which was the, which was the Washitas, 10,000 feet tall. The erosion of the Washitas filled in the Washita Basin and is basically now Louisiana. Louisiana is the sediment of the Washita Mountains. Wow. Your mother was a school teacher. Yeah. Well done, Miss Newcomb. Yeah. <laughs> well say, done. I, I'm, getting, Man, a, hey, I'm, I'm getting a history I'm, lesson. I don't have any questions. I'm just going to sit well, back and listen hey, to that, them talk. That ties into bears, though, because... The habitat, like the habitat in the Washitas would be quite different than habitat in the Ozarks. Uh, trees would be similar. We'd have all the same, you know, the same oak hickory climax forest, a little more pine down the Washitas. But it's because of these long east-west running ridges create two different environments, a, a southern arid slope and a mesic moist northern slope. And all the mountains have it. Like in the Ozarks, the, the ridges are irregular because it was made by erosion. So you have probably a similar amount of you know east facing slopes and this and that anyway they bears and game use the northern sides different than they use the southern sides anyway just it, it creates different uh some different plant habitats and stuff it, all that stuff fascinates me that's, that's super interesting yeah. to even think about uh just wildlife and when you're out trying to hunt and stuff of that they would definitely use the sides for different reasons and yeah. trying to get the science different plants and, grow yeah you know, the blueberry like in the washtals the bear habitat 
the bear world revolves around sort of two mass crop developments and one of them would be in june and it's the blueberry crop and blueberries do awesome on south facing arid slopes underneath pine stands and so the bears just make a living off blueberries in the summer but then during the fall they're making a living off white oak acorns which the white oaks are there's white oaks on the south side of the mountain but there's probably more on the north side because the south sides are dominated by pine but anyway there's lots of crazy stuff but it, it to me it all relates back to bear because we wouldn't have bear if we didn't have habitat right well without question my whole life when someone would ask me what's your favorite animal it's always been a bear like if, if the mm. spirit animal within us is real mine is without question a bear i, I love mm. them I've, I've not hunted them very much i have killed two bears uh one being a really exceptional hunt one uh has some regrets in it and we can get to talking about that but first i want you to explain uh, what regulations there are in arkansas how you can hunt bears yeah because bear hunting really is one of those controversial things where there's different regulations in different pockets yeah. of the country and canada and all over there's yeah. different different feelings on the right way to hunt bears so what's going on in arkansas and in your mind is it is it correct and if if it is why if it's not why yeah yeah so we manage bears i mean most bears are harvested over bait on private land and i and i, I like that i think it's good i think it uh you know bait allows somebody to be selective uh you're able to draw in a lot of different animals see what they are and make a good decision about which one to which one to take that's a good thing um um the the yeah the the regulations are are, are good the only thing that i wish they would do is would be move the season up a little bit earlier because by the time we have our season the the bears are pulling off bait going to mass crop and a bear would rather eat mass crop than anything you could put out for him that's hard for people to believe but it'll blow your mind you could have a a bait site and and have bears coming in and then all of a sudden they're gone and so what you end up having is you end up with the the juvenile stragglers is what i like to call them coming to your bait because the the big males and the big dominant animals uh, are they are very very territorial with food source and so they leave to go to the best food sources and sometimes your bait then becomes later in the season when mast becomes available it becomes an inferior food source so a lot of times you get juveniles and females that are still there anyway that's the reason i wish they would move it back move it a little bit earlier is it i think you would i think they would harvest more males which that goes against some of what they the general doctrine general bear hunting doctrine is that the later you get into the fall the more males that you kill okay that's that's bear site bear management 101 but in this situation i think it inverses it a little bit because the big males are off on the prime food sources and anyway that's my only qualm against what what we're doing in arkansas so you can't run them with dogs no Nope. Are licenses over the counter? You can, yep. Everybody that has an Arkansas hunting sportsman's license, you know, I pay $25 for mine. Every single one of us has a bear tag. Is there any quota? There is a quota in the Ozarks. So there's two main bear zones in Arkansas. Zone one, which would be the Ozarks, which would be the biggest bear zone in Arkansas, which would border Missouri. 
And then the Washtals would be zone two, which would be the second biggest. And there's a couple of small zones in the lower White River drainage where you can hunt bears, but they have quotas of like 10 animals, so it's pretty small. So we have a lot of friends that work for the Department of Conservation that listen to this podcast. So I want you to give some advice to them as they start exploring options for regulations on a bear hunt. Yeah. With with the... The slate is clean right, right now. Right. We, can, we can write the future. How do you think we should proceed with our bear hunt here in Missouri? You know, Oklahoma, and I know Jeff Ford well. He's one of the he's the main bear biologist in Oklahoma. I know a lot of those people over there. Ten years ago, they were in the exact same situation. The bears from Arkansas had moved into Oklahoma. They had a clean slate, and they essentially did what we had done which was they allowed baiting for bears on private land and uh, with a with a pretty – they started with a quota because they didn't know how many animals that they were going to take out. So they started with like a 20-bear quota, and uh, and they ended up filling that quota. And they Oklahoma actually moved to a place where they removed the quota because they felt like the quota was actually incentivizing people to shoot the first animal that they saw. And so guys, sense, guys yeah. were guys were killing younger animals. So they removed the quota, and uh, you know, it's a good model. It's it, the 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 bait and bear on private land is it's just a good model for management because you're able to you can put a quota on it if you need to, and if and this is where I don't know that we've done a great job in Arkansas is that. I would like to see us move towards more education to bear hunters on letting the juveniles and females go and trying to target those older age class males because those are the best animals to take out for conservation and it's uh it just it 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 works better if you do it that way. You can actually have a more liberal season if there's more ma- older males being taken out. So can you only hunt on private land then? No, okay, that's just that's just the I'm, the I'm describing the main part of our harvest system, okay. which is bait on private land, okay? Can you bait on public land? No. And 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 I'm glad that you cannot bait on public land. In Idaho and in a few places you can and they've got a good system that works, so it's good for them. Um so that's sector one where 95% of our bear hunting is done. It's like that sector two, which is actually what I'm more interested in than anything that I do is my, my favorite hunt of all time. I mean, if you could say, Clay, let's go to Kodiak and kill a brown bear, or you could be the king of the world of the mountains of Arkansas and kill them with a stick bow, hunting them like deer. I would choose the latter. I think I think hunting bears in national forest, and you can hunt them on national forest. You can hunt you can hunt bears anywhere, and basically half the half the state is an open bear zone. So you can kill bears on private land. You can kill bears on public land, um, and but you cannot use bait or hounds or anything on public land. So basically, you can go into any Arkansas national forest, any wildlife management area that's in a bear zone, and hunt a bear like a deer essentially go out find sign locate a bear you know in whatever tactic you use whether you're trying to hunt them out of a tree stand or trying to uh still hunt them whatever whatever you do so but there's probably 
I bet there's less than 15 bears killed, maybe 25 that are killed on purpose in the national forest. Now, uh, deer hunters kill a lot of bears kind of by happenstance. And, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, guys that are deer hunting in the national forest, and a bear walks by, and they shoot it because they've got a tag, and it's seasoned, and it's legal. A lot of bears get killed that way. Um, but what but what I've tried to focus on is is doing it on purpose in the national forest. Like, that's the main goal, you know. Well, that's really interesting. With my limited experience in bear hunting, I also believe that baiting is a good thing. I, I For the same exact reasons, that you can be more selective. You have time to examine that animal. You know if it has cubs, if it's a sow. Yeah. Um, the bear that's hanging on the wall over there. So I've got a, a half life size bear that I shot with a stick bow in Ontario mm. over bait. Um, five bears were around me at that time. And a couple of them had cubs. And I thought this was a boar. It ended up being a big dry sow. Mm. Uh, but I knew after watching this bear that it did not have cubs. Yeah. Yeah. So that I think that from a scientific <clears throat> and conservation-minded approach, baiting actually lets you do a better job of managing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the, the hounds are uh, going to be a problem down here. I mean, I don't they, – they chase everything, deer, you know, all deer season long, and that's not legal. I, I can't imagine we're not going to have – some problems with with bears being chased with hounds but you can't regulate against people that are going to break the rules anyways right right. um so so i'm glad to hear that we kind of agree i i do like the idea of a quota just because at least in the beginning we'll see where yeah they probably need to start out with a quota yeah i would say so no i was just going to bring up the baiting because being a novice bear hunter and uh, i know that's a bit of a controversial topic of you're you're you're, yeah. you're you're baiting baiting something to you, but you guys make valid points of being able the selection and being able to to choose which one. And I think isn't another one you guys are talking about the size, like because you can really compare it to the barrel. Yeah, you get that, a, you get a good chance to look them up. That when you just see them in the it, wild, here, you can you can misread the size or yeah. the the age of a bear. Here, here's the strongest point for it though, is that it is a necessity in the regions any anywhere and you could just point on a map to all the places in north america where you can hunt bear over bait and the reason that that is legal is because they have to use that as a management tool to bring out the number of bears that they need to i mean we that that, that's the only reason we did in arkansas it was not a hey i wonder how we could make the fat lazy hunters have an easier time to kill a bear (laughs) that's the stereotype you know yeah it's wrong it's wrong but we in arkansas with the best hunters doing the best we could do with all the bears that we had the most we ever killed when baiting was not legal was about 150 bears well if you go back to what i said about to stabilize the bear population you need to take 10 percent out per year and and now we've got six thousand bears in arkansas and so we're neat and they're bumping up the quotas in the ozarks we're needing to kill 600 bears a year and uh it, it just isn't gonna happen i've been sitting here trying to remember where we met but one of your films were, was being shown do you recall it, it's a few years back i met you at ata that's where it was we just bumped into each other at yeah, and, ATA. and you had a film being shown at, at a, a showing well, something 
Yeah, maybe so. Maybe through Philip Vanderpool. Yeah, that's how, that's how you were with Philip when I met you. I met you through Philip, and then I saw one of your films. Well, you may have seen it at the Badlands Film Festival. Or that's something. what it was. Okay. So at that moment, I knew like. Growing up, and even today, a lot of people that, I, that I've known look at me like I'm a pretty experienced and, and hardcore hunter. And I guess compared to the average public, I am. So I love it when I meet someone that just blows me away. And, and you do, man. Like, you are an absolute killer. And the way you do it with stick bows and, and shooting off of a mule, like, <laughs> I'm so envious of, like, your skill and ability. It's, it is legitimately some of the greatest hunting I've seen. And, and the fact that you go out and you do a lot of these short films and, and do it in these magical places. But the one that just drew me in was you killed a spot and stalk bear with a stick bow on the National Forest in Arkansas that was yeah. laying up on a rock, kind of sunning himself. And you told me that story, and I'm thinking, I, I shoot traditional bows too, not as well as you do, but that just sounds nearly impossible to me. Well, you're, you're, you're getting two stories crossed just a little bit. That you, Everything you said is true except the combination of those. You heard me tell a story at the BHA Story Night about killing a 500-pound color phase Arkansas bear that, yeah, I saw sunning asleep on a rock, and I killed him with my muzzleloader, but at about 25 yards. Okay. On the last day of the Arkansas bear season, it was November 30th, and that was actually the first bear I ever killed in National Forest, and I had set out, and for four years I'd tried to kill one in National Forest. And there just weren't people doing that. I mean, like, people didn't – to this day, there's still just a handful of people that I know that do it consistently. And now, what the film that you would have seen, Brandon, would have been in National Forest when I killed a bear over a water hole. When I went into, uh, I went back into an area and um, and just found a ton of bear sign, knew where there was a water hole up on top of this mountain, knew if the bears were up high like they were that they'd probably be hitting that water too, which was the closest water source. It was early season. It was hot. And I went in there and, and killed a bear over water with the trad bow. And then the next, I had an Oklahoma tag in my pocket. Uh, in Oklahoma, you have to buy the tag before season opens. And so I killed this bear in Arkansas. And, uh, and I knew that whatever the bears were doing in Arkansas, they'd be doing the same thing in Oklahoma, just the same mountains, Ozarks and Washtals running into Oklahoma. Well, the reason that I'd been able to kill that bear in Arkansas was the mass crop was super concentrated up high. No acorns or anything down low. Everything was right on tops of the ridges. And when that happens, you're in the chips. And uh, so I'd, I'd never been to this exact spot, but I, I had an idea of where I thought a bear would be in Oklahoma. And I went in there, and the next morning by 10 o'clock, I'd killed another bear with my bow on the ground uh, in Oklahoma. And yeah, to me that that's like at the top of the charts for me. Really, I, I would rather I would those two bears and neither one of them were big big huge animal. They were just average bears. But so we, those mean more to me than any critter I've ever killed. So walk me through this process. Again, I'm amazed by it that you're on the ground. I mean, I get finding a water hole. That's pretty right. pretty basic hunting ide- yeah, ideology. Yeah, yeah. But 
are you, are you just going out? You know there's bears there, or you've seen some sign? Do you get on a trail? Are Let's you see, just bears, barely, barely so, walking through the timber? How do so you, if you there there are regions, and these regions will become solidified more and more in Missouri that are just bear areas. There's just there's just places where you just that you know hold bears, and so I would have gone back into a place that I just knew had bears. Now bears are low density animals, which means you know like. Deer populations might be 40 deer per square mile, and that would be a pretty high deer population. So you would see deer while you're driving down the road. You'd see them standing in the back of fields. You would hit them with your car. Mm -hmm. A high bear density is about one bear per square mile. Now, when you bait, you, you, you're you drawing bears in from a lot of different places. So a lot of people that bait bears think, oh, man, there's I got 15 different bears coming into my bait. You You may. But those bears are coming. For, you're drawing bears from way over. So if you're hunting bears on natural food source, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. But bears are super habitual, and they're sloppy suckers. So they make a lot of sign. And so you can you can walk and what I mean you can walk for days in good bear country and not see fresh bear sign. But then all of a sudden, bam, you find it. And and that's essentially what I look for is I'm, I'm, it's not like, you know, you could just about walk anywhere on any given year and find deer sign. Like you told me about a place you hunt right here close, Brandon, where it's like you, you kind of know there's going to be deer in there. Some years it may be real good, maybe next year not as good, but you could always go in there and probably kill a deer. Bear hunt's not like that. The bears have big home ranges, you know, between five and 20 square mile home ranges in arkansas so they may be here they may be there all based on food well that's what fascinates me about it so kind of walk me through the the season then so you you go day one you're out you you got an area where you know there should be bear and you're just looking for a fresh sign if you don't find it by dark you just i would have already done some some homework by the, by the fr- yeah. opening day and not scout i don't scout much uh, i mean in terms of uh like going out before season trying to find a bear my success has usually been on the first time that i find sign killing a bear within a couple hours wow yeah so like uh, um but i i would have i would already know what the mast was doing so this year i killed a bear in national forest um and I had not even been on the mountain this year, but I knew that acorns were high. And I knew that because I paid attention in the spring to the frosts and uh, the mountains up high didn't even have leaves by the time uh, it was co- a real cold spring last year. And so all the, all the trees leafed out down low and got a hard frost and the white oaks up on top of the mountain had, didn't even have leaves. And so the inverse happened in the fall. All all the acorns were up high, and there was nothing down low. So I knew up high was where to go. So I, I've done some I've done some research, and I know where I'm going. And like this year, I knew the acorns were high, and I went in to a spot that I knew would probably hold some. And when I say a spot, I mean just an area, the top of this mountain. They could have been here. They could have been a half mile down the mountain. Yeah. I didn't know. I was just going to walk the top of this mountain. As soon as I got on top, I, I started finding bear scat, bear trails, and white oak acorns all over the ground. And in two hours, I'd kill the bear. Man, we we think we do some pre-hunting by just setting up some trail cams. This guy's out watching, like leaves falling and frost conditions. That's that's really impressive. Of all my friends, 
Clay Newcomb may be the most real deal when it comes to killing critters. That's I mean, legit. He, we didn't even get into the mules. I mean, this could go on for hours and hours. And <laughs> he, he raises and trains mules, and, and he hunts off them, hunting squirrels mm-hmm. in the National Forest of Arkansas, and deer and bears. And, and you travel to Canada, and you kill bears up there, but you also kill huge thumper white tails and and unfortunately we don't have time to get into that because we're about to go meet up with billy smith down at the, some small mouth yeah bass, we're going to the the confluence the current river and jack's fork which is called two rivers and we're going to go out and do some uh some smallmouth fishing and shags isn't going to join us he's going to go catch some trout but he knows full well how good this fishing is oh no 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 exaggeration if you are given the opportunity to stop podcasting right now and go fish with billy smith i've already i would have already left <laughs> but it would be uh, it would be an absolute disservice not to get into the business side of what you're doing and yeah. uh prior to you owning it i'd done some writing for bear hunter magazine yeah and, and amazing how did how did you come to be the owner of bear you hunter know, magazine so bear bear hunting magazine has has only had two owners one was jeff Folsom. He had it for 14 years, and then I've now had the magazine for seven years, and so we've been in print for 20 years, and Bear Hunting Magazine is the only, well, this is the way I like to describe it. We're a massive, massive fish in a pond about as big as a coffee cup, um, so we're, uh, we're, we're, we're the big fish in the small pond. We're the only print Bear Hunting Magazine in the world, so everybody's supposed to laugh when I say that, wow. um, um, and I- anyway, it's a... Uh, it's a it's a it's a cool business, man. We uh, we represent a lot of great bear hunting outfitters all over the country and in Canada, uh, but we 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 do our best to service the full gamut of bear hunting in North America. So we have hound stuff, you know, the the Appalachians and out west. I mean, bear hunting with hounds is like, you know, I mean, it's like an incredibly rich culture of hunting that i 100 percent stand behind that's also north carolina and the yeah. beaches where some of the biggest bears live. that's too. right that's right fascinating stuff man I, I i didn't know much about the bear hunting with hound world we we cover that we cover bait hunting up north and hunting in arkansas we cover western spot and stalk stuff i like I, some of my favorite hunts are going out to montana with my mules in the spring spring bear hunting um What's like I said earlier, bears are thriving everywhere. I mean, wherever there's a bear population, there's about a 90% chance that it's increasing in number. And that means more opportunity. But bears are also some of the most, um, some of the most, uh, threatened hunting rights animals that we have too, just because charismatic megafauna, you know, people. People view bears differently than they do cervids and ungulates. I mean, it's like it's it's a real interesting place to be. Sometimes I feel like we're, we're becoming more and more of a of a advocacy group for for hunters' rights. Um, we really are. We're 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 building our narratives on why we do what we do. Becoming really introspective. Uh, I spend a lot of time every issue really talking to our readership and at least the stuff that i write saying hey we got to clean the inside of the cup and then we'll clean the outside too you know we there's some things we need to clean up inside of our world and part of that to me is educating people like on the stuff with baiting like a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't have those words to say that justify you know that and it's not just justification but it's if i can sit down with somebody and talk to them about baiting all of a sudden they're like oh, okay you're not a 
you're not a crazy lazy hunter like I thought you were. No, it makes there's, sense. There's, I was there's a little bit of science, there's a little bit of management behind it. Like that little piece of information, if you can say it in the right way and understand it, can turn the whole tide of the way something looks, you know. And and you do a great job with the magazine. It's really well done. But you're kind of preaching to the choir in a sense. Like yeah. if somebody's picking up Bear Hunting magazine, they probably get it. Another place that you have thrived is in in video production. And you've got a couple of videos out there that have been massively successful. One, I mean, you've had over a million views on. So now you're taking those messages and you're spreading it out way beyond people who who have any kind of bear hunting acumen or already right, are a bear right. hunter. So how did you get into that? And, and talk about the – I can't think of the title of that video right now. I can see it in my head. But it, walk yeah. people through what that video is about. Well, you know, we just started. We just started traveling all over North America, bear hunting, and we said we might as well. We might as well film this and tell the story, you know. And so we started filming seven years ago, and uh, and yeah, our, our most viewed platform is is YouTube, um, and uh, it, just bear hunting magazine YouTube. I think we've got eighty videos up or something, and and there's actually one with three point two million views, and another one with two point two million, and then another with one point five million. So a couple of, couple of videos over a million views. Uh, one of those is a mule training video of all things, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I mean it it kind of happened on accident almost i mean we really have worked on our craft of videography and storytelling and and we try to produce i think the stuff we're produ- producing now is i mean pretty high quality and 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 tells a good story but i mean we're just trying to stay true to who we are and i i love video i mean i it's i'm a i'm a writer i mean i, I think probably my base level foundational core of communication is probably writing but second would be videography and storytelling inside of videography. And, um, and so, anyway, yeah, check it out, Bear Hunting Magazine. Well, quickly touch on that video with the 3 million views and what goes on. In well, okay, that, you hadn't even seen the one with 3 million, I doubt. Uh, you want me to tell the story about the bear touching my arrow. Yeah, I thought that was That one has 2.2. There's okay. another one that has 3.2. Well, I might have seen it. I followed it's you closer Alaska you video. It's an Alaska video. Okay. Uh, no, no. The, the, the one that you're talking about, I think it's called uh, uh, Too Close. It's Bear Hunting Magazine. It's called uh, Pretty Close. I think that's what it's called. Because that's what I said. I said, man, that bear got pretty close. Touched uh, his arrow. <laughs> yeah, so we're hunting in Saskatchewan. We're 22 miles from the nearest road. The other direction from me, the nearest road is 56 miles. Man, Canada has wilderness that makes the lower 48 in North America look like, you know, My a city second, park. My second bear I killed was in northern British Columbia, about an hour north of Prince George in similar mm. situation. Mm, yeah. We're in the Canadian wilderness, 22 miles upriver, and uh, these bears just haven't been around people. They really haven't. And... Uh, and inside of that situation, we're we're waiting for an older age class male, you know. And uh, long story short, a bear comes in that we believe it was his first ever encounter with a human. The outfitter had never didn't have any pictures of the bear, never seen it before. It's a color face bear, uh, and kind of a uh, orange colored reddish bear. And uh, we're on the ground in a brush blind, so it's not like a like a man-made blind we're just sitting on the ground mm-hmm. you know essentially with like spruce boughs put all around us and this bear just strolls in and you can kind of tell that he sees us he kind of moves his head and kind of makes eye contact with me 
and he kind of he, he kind of acts like he's going to pass by me at about four yards. So he's kind of coming towards me, but at an angle. And I'm shooting the traditional bow, a long bow. And you were going to kill him the whole time. Oh yeah, he he was a bear that's like, okay, that is the older. That's the bear I want to kill. Yep. I'm standing up, and he's angling, and he's about to be about four yards from me, broadside. So I mean, I got three fingers on the knock, and I'm about to I'm about to shoot him. And right as he gets even with me, he turns. And he just comes straight towards me. And I kept thinking, everybody says, why'd you stand there? Well, I just thought he was going to turn. I didn't think he was going to do what he did. And anyway, he just, I mean, he, he, we don't think he'd ever seen him. He just, he didn't, he wasn't really being aggressive. It was more just curiosity, but he put his head in our blind. He touched the end of my arrow and I jumped back. And I mean, he could have. I mean, I could have slapped him in the face, you know. <laughs> um, and that's the only time, well, the bear just kind of looks at me about this close. And then he just drops to all fours and turns. And I shot him right there at about three yards. It's unbelievable. That's insane. But I took a lot of lot of grief for that on 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 the YouTubes. What, for, for just oh, bear hunting? I think or? there's 2,700 comments on that video. Didn't you turn them off for a while? I had them turned off for a while, and I turned them back on. Yeah. Since we've, probably since we have done this podcast, I've gotten comments on that video. Since For real. Every day. Every single day. For what? Just being a bear hunter and being anti anti Some of them positive. Well, after Ranella told people to go like it, that helped a lot. Uh, Really did. We got like 20,000 likes and like 11,000 dislikes. And before that, there were more dislikes than likes. His reach is incredible. Really? Where's my bear grease, by the way? In the truck. Yes. I, br- I brought you bear grease. <laughs> I love you, man. I did. Oklahoma bear grease. Uh, uh, I forget. It's in the truck. That's um, awesome. No, there, there's the things that those people say would blow your mind. Threatening my family, threatening my life. It, it, it kind of spooked me at first, but now it's just That's what normal. we went deep into last night is what this internet, social media, web has opened up for people to do and say. And if I, yeah. I, 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 I've jokingly but seriously said recently that the only thing I take away from it is how how bad our education system is. <laughs> and, and I can... All the grammar errors. Yeah. <laughs> but I can relate just being a radio DJ for taking over uh, nationally syndicated Bob and Tom. I, the, they canceled their contract and I took over. Like legitimate death threats because mm. I'm just trying to do my job on on the radio. People wishing I was uh, wishing I was dead, wishing my mother had died at birth. and I mean, just awful, yeah. awful things. And yeah. so I, I'm... I'm familiar with the idea. Well, go of kill a bear and so, tell them about it. Social, see what happens. Well, social I had, media uh, telling you should die. I had yeah. multiple death threats when we were dealing with the captive deer, and really? uh, literally had to call the police. It takes a lot for me mm. to call the police and mm. be like, "Hey, this guy says he's going to shoot me and my family." Wow. You know, and and that's a serious issue. So yeah. people are nuts, man. Like yeah. it's unfortunate, but it's true. They seriously are. Well, how we normally wind down our podcast is we have what we call the mystery bait buckets, that mm. antique bait bucket in front of you, bud. So they're just random questions, kind of usually silly and ridiculous that have been submitted by friends, family, fans of the show. And if you got a question you want in the bucket, you can just hit us up direct message on Instagram or Facebook. So Clay, if you'd grab the bait you bucket, pull out a question, start it off, and we'll all go around and, and answer it. All right. What was the most successful prank that you've ever pulled? 
Oh, man. Oh, I'll I, start. I got a good one. This is horrible, though. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't be calling me later to ask me to edit it out. Yeah. You say it, it stays. <laughs> so when I was young, my par- I bow hunted before I gun hunted. Uh, my parents wouldn't let me have a gun, and uh, my grandpa helped me out, and I ordered a $99 Springfield Hawkins Sidehammer muzzleloader from Bass Pro Shop. This would have been maybe in 1990, 1991, and uh, killed my first deer with it, a yearling doe. I was 14 years old, but my brother and I were messing around, and I said, you want to scare the shit out of mom? And he said, yeah, so (laughs) with a muzzleloader, you can put a cap on it, like a cap gun. And so I, you know, I knew this gun wasn't loaded and, uh, uh, again, reminding you that I'm 14 and dumb as a box of rocks. Don't try this at home. Don't try this at home sort of deal. And, uh, put a cap on that muzzleloader and my brother and I are messing around the house carrying guns and mom's get that out of here. And I cock it back and I go, it's not loaded. And I pulled the trigger and you know that cap goes off and my brother falls down on the floor like oh, he shot no. oh no, no. that was bad that's mom, your bad poor mother you need to edit that out that's bad <laughs> oh you poor mother i feel like oh. I, we should all call her and just say sorry for yeah, you yeah but my gosh it worked she was freaked out oh man <laughs> no bueno top that all right, so I think mine is at work at the radio station. We went through a prank fray, prank phase, and my whole idea about pranking is if you prank me, be prepared that I'm going to come at you so hard that you will ever regret you did it, and that usually gets me off the board because no one wants the repercussions. Mm-hmm. So my co-host, Trevor, had done something silly. I can't remember what it was. So on the day of his bachelor party, we were going down to this, this gun shooting resort to shoot sporting clays and stay and fish and stay in these cabins that I got on Craigslist and wrote up this big thing about how I finally convinced my wife to get rid of all our baby clothes. And I was taking images off Google Image and saying they're free. Call me now before she changes her mind. This has been a battle. My son's five and I still have his pre-K clothes. And just this huge rant of like, she's crazy. I want to get rid of him. Call me immediately if you want him. Come get him. Mm. And right before we left for his bachelor party, he was already down there. I posted it. And Mm. we went down and the first first thing out of his mouth was someone put my number on craigslist my phone's been blowing up all goddamn day like all his bachelor party all weekend long his phone was bing 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 it was text messages and phone calls about these baby clothes that i put on craigslist you want to prank someone put some free shit on craigslist with their cell phone especially baby clothes man they go crazy for you guys are ruthless man (laughs) y'all are gonna make me look like a saint well I, I'm I'm not a big big prankster, but the meanest thing that I think I've ever uh, that I ever did uh, in terms of a prank was uh, we had a we had a guy that we went to high school with, and you know in our defense he wasn't like a nerd he was like a jock like a like pretty 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 normal good guy, and anyway but he wasn't an outdoorsman at all and and we had a big camping trip and we got the fire going at night and we said hey let's go snipe hunting and all of us were in on it yeah except for this guy and he didn't know the outdoors we're like we're gonna go snipe hunting this is how you do it you just go sit out in the woods and you'll be by yourself and we'll try to push the bird to you you listen for the bird and try to catch it when it comes by and he was like gung-ho and anyway we took him out we left him for two hours came back and he was just like 
man, I didn't hear anything. And we, we had gone back and sat around the fire. Yeah. And then we said, well, do you want to go again? And he was like, yeah, man, let's do it again. And we put him out. I remember it as another two hours. I mean, it was just over the top amount of time. And anyway, finally at midnight, we went and picked him up. And I mean, he had no idea. He thought we were hunting. He was hardcore. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's all funny. I got. You guys are, you guys are, <laughs> that's still, are way better than mine. Well, that's still a good one. Well, do our final cast of the podcast i mean be sure to hit all your websites your social media and your podcast i'll put it in the show notes as well but man um i'm jealous you guys are gonna go small fishing with billy smith great dude great guide knows the current river it's gonna be a lot of fun because uh, i could sit here and talk to you for hours about bear hunting man it's you are definitely the real deal and it's been a pleasure to meet you well thank you i appreciate it man good to meet you nathan it's been too long for me since i've been bear hunting and now i've kind of got the fever all of a sudden again the last time i went was in northern british columbia as i said and it was mm-hmm. actually for a a long-range shooting show when i was the marketing manager at caldwell still uh, and it left a pretty bad taste in my mouth because we didn't really collect the meat and mm-hmm. i don't know if that's normal up there or not but it mm-hmm. was just not what i expected nor did mm-hmm. I want to shoot a bear from 300 yards, which they also required that I do. So after that, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to do this anymore. But I'm ready to go again. And if I yeah. go again, I want to go with you, man. Right so if, if you got ever a slot on one of these northern Canada trips or even down in Arkansas, I'd like to I'd like to hit the woods with the yeah, legendary man. Clay Nuke. That'd be awesome. Hey, well, I look forward to the day when Missouri has a bear season. You know, n- not just for the sake so that people can go – and hunt and kill a bear but anytime that there is a new season instituted in a region it's a massive success for conservation i mean you know it truly is and so bears coming back into the the southern missouri these ozark mountains i mean really there's only been about a 200 year span in the last 10,000 years that they haven't been here and so we're come we're coming back to the roots of the Ozarks when you start getting bears. So I look forward to the day when you can hunt them in Missouri. And I just want to make sure we also emphasize the fact that we talked about your magazine and we yeah. talked about your videos, but also bear hunting mag or bear hunting mag bear hunting magazine podcast. Make sure you get out there and check out Clay's podcast because if you liked what you heard today, there's a lot more of it to listen to. Yeah, it's really good. And yeah, really quickly, just hit all your websites and where you at. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram just at Clay. I think it's Clay dot or Clay underscore underscore Nukem. Uh, and then Bear Hunting Magazine, Bear Hunting Mag on Instagram, Bear Hunting Magazine on Facebook, Clay Nukem on Facebook. And uh, you know our website. If you just type in Bear Hunting Magazine in a Google search bar, you'll find us. But it's Bear Hunting dot com. And uh, yeah, you know we're we're kind of the go to place for anybody that's looking to travel and bear hunt. That really, that's our bread and butter from a business perspective is we represent about 50 to 60 outfitters across the country. And we know all these people and have hunted with a lot of them. And so people call us and say, hey, I've got this much time. I want to go to this place. I want to have this kind of hunt. Who would you go to? And, you know, we give people suggestions and stuff. So, Man, that's awesome. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Gear review coming up next. Time for the Driftwood Outdoors gear review. Every podcast has to come to an end, but that's just the beginning of a new gear review. Butler, what do you have to review for us today? Oh, this one I'm actually hugging. Like you are. Next to my chest. When I was living in Montana, one of my first big 
material desires was to have a Winston fly rod. So Winston's originated in San Francisco um, and ended up in Montana. Moved there in the early 70s to a tiny little town called Twin Bridges down in the southwest part of the state. And they're one of the most high-end fly rods out there. And I was calling on a Napa store in my first job in Montana in Twin Bridges and took a tour of the factory and just dreamed someday I would get one of these like $600 fly rods. And it ended up being, I think, one of my first eBay purchases ever was a used Winston about half price. And it became like my prized possession. And I fished my way around Montana with it for four years. Um, a year ago or so, I completed another dream in acquiring my first Winston bamboo. And this one was really special because it was one of the last ones made in San Francisco before the move. And this is a pretty high dollar deal, you know, and it was a gift to myself for getting my new job at Raceline. So I got that at an auction. So I, I had two for two on used Winstons. Then lo and behold, I'm at another fundraiser and there she is. A four-weight Winston Boron 3X nine-footer. And I now have my very first Winston. And I'd like to be able to review to you how good it fishes, but I haven't even taken it out of the tube yet. I just know I already love it. He hasn't been able to. He's just been cradling it too tight. I'm just so excited about it. These Winston fly rods are, are, I mean, there's so many good fly rods out there. You know, it's not like it's the best, but... For me, there's just some brand loyalty to it because of how I fell in love with where they're at and and how I came to know the brand and the company. So, man, I'm a Winston guy. And I do I do enjoy that you're talking about your your high end fly rod, and then I'm my gear review is beanie the, weenies, the cheapest pair of boots you can find. <laughs> That still work because everyone kept telling me you got to have mucks and you got to have these different brands and I needed a pair of like insulated rubber boots to wear around driftwood acres and to have what just bank fishing occasionally or just during deer season and I, I didn't really want to break down and, and spend a, a hundred hundred and fifty two hundred dollars on a pair of boots oh and I found Magellan's the Magellan's outdoor men's field boot three and you can get them marked down for about 50 bucks at Academy Sports. I'm wearing them right now. They're really comfortable, insulated, keep my feet warm, my feet dry, and I'm always looking for deals because I'd much rather much rather spend it on lures or ammo than actual the stuff I wear because I'm hell on I'm hell on a gear. So if you're looking for a, a reasonably priced rubber boot, Magellan Outdoors is the way to go. We come to an end of another podcast, and you know you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Drifted Outdoors, on Facebook, Drifted Outdoors. If you got any questions or suggestions for guests, we're all ears. You can either direct message us on the social medias or info at driftwoodoutdoors.com. And you can also follow Brandon's uh, articles, his new pa- newspaper articles, at driftwoodoutdoors.com. Man, did you hear about all them awesome people that have been sharing this podcast? I've seen a couple of them, yes. God, I, if I wasn't sharing it at this point, I would be so embarrassed. <laughs> like, I would feel so bad if I wasn't sharing this podcast with everyone I knew. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I'm trying to drop some mom guilt on them. <laughs> we will see you down the trail. <laughs>